0: You're listening to The Last Breath Podcast, your home for more deeply connecting to your inner being, your higher meaning, and your greater purpose. Because creating peace begins now. I'm your host, Dr. Tej Khalsa, MD. Let us show you how to transform stress management into something beautiful. Liberation. Our summer retreat, overcoming overwhelm. Why climb when you can fly? We'll make it all easy. Check out our show notes for tickets. Welcome back. In this comeback season, I'm promising to deliver you a big shift out of fatigue and into fulfillment, starting in episode one with sometimes stopping is the best way to start. In that episode, I talked about having the courage to stop and intentionally look at the spaces inside yourself and the places in your life where you've been feeling stuck and compassionately, tenderly, Entering into conversation with this part of yourself to unearth the truth, even if it's uncomfortable. In episode 2, I talked about rest. The need to reclaim rest as a way of cleaning house, letting go of what's kept you stuck, those ties that bind, releasing them, and clearing the path for the whispers of the heart to return once more. Those whispers that have been planted in you, I believe, by the same grace that holds us all here, those whispers that speak to you of your dreams. Finally, in the most recent episode, Let Me Be Frank, I talked about everything it takes to spring into action, translating those whispers of the heart into miracles you make happen in the world around you. We're on the second-to-last episode of this season of The Last Breath Podcast, moving closer to a promised land to the sovereign soil of your own joy and purpose fulfilled. And while I believe this is the path every single one of us has been put here, on this earth to walk, it is by no means an easy ride. There's too much in this world that runs the risk of making you weep, that runs the risk of knocking you down, even as you summon all your courage to lift up your heart and spread your wings. So what do you do? What can you possibly call on within yourself to protect you, to strengthen you, to power you, to clear the path, to navigate a too often treacherous world? Who can you call on as a constant companion? Who can you trust to successfully deliver you to a promised land? You can call on love. You can call on love. Dr. Maya Angelou said that love is that condition in the human spirit so profound that it allows us to forgive. And it may be the energy which keeps the stars in the firmament. I'm not sure. It may be the energy which keeps the blood running smoothly through our veins. I'm not sure. But it's something beyond the explanation. It can be used for anything you can explain, any good thing you can explain. And so in the name of your goodness, in the name of sharing more of your goodness, in the name of coming more fully alive, I have to call on love. And I have to specifically call on someone who is one of the greatest embodiments of love that I have ever known. To guide the way forward. Her name is Michelle. Please allow me the pleasure of introducing you to her. I met Michelle my first week on service as a medical trainee at a famous academic medical center in the tiny city of Rochester, Minnesota. My husband, son, and I had just moved to the town, and we didn't know anyone. Not well, at least. As a welcome gift, a mentor and colleague arranged for me to visit the clinic spa. Fancy, right? I closed out my very first week with a visit to the spa. I stretched out the indulgence by bringing a good book. There I was, on a Friday afternoon at the end of September, reclining in a spa lounge chair, wrapped up in a long cotton robe, feet and slippers propped up on an ottoman, my skin still tingling from the residue of a seaweed body wrap. As I was reading, a petite lady quietly approached me. She had dark brown hair, pulled back in a loose bun, glasses, and was clothed in the spa's regulation uniform of black pants and a black polo shirt. She softly lowered herself down onto one knee, next to the ottoman. I hope I'm not disturbing you, she said, looking up at me with a warm smile, her voice brimming with affection. No, not at all, I said, lowering my book onto my lap so I could face her fully. I couldn't help but overhear you telling the folks at the front desk that you're new to town and that you have a two-year-old i'm a mom too in fact i think our kids are probably the same age we just moved here a little while ago and i know how hard it is to be a young family in a new place i nodded her presence felt like a warm fire at my feet i sat up and leaned in towards her listening so i tried to think of everything we've enjoyed doing with our daughter or still want to do with her and i made you a list I'm hoping you and your son might enjoy doing some of these things too. The spa attendant, still on bended knee, slowly lifted up with both hands a little yellow sticky note. She presented the tiny piece of paper the way a beloved might present a little velvet box with a ring. The sticky note was lifted up, right side up, so that I could read the meticulous, detailed message with ease. I looked down from my perch in the reclining lounge chair, inspecting the little yellow square. In precise, miniature handwriting, I took in line after line of detailed activities, locations, and offerings for children. Almost each one dotted with exclamation marks. Sea Cap Orchard, apple picking, exclamation mark. Rochester Public Library, award-winning children's area and free children's programs, exclamation mark. ABC Toy Zone, free story time, exclamation mark. Line after line of what must have been five-point handwritten font on a two-inch-wide yellow sticky note, neatly embellished with at least seven suggested activities per side. The spa attendant quietly read each one out loud. A great feat, considering she had to read her own tiny handwriting upside down. She also editorialized each suggestion, adding offhand what she liked about it for her daughter and why she thought my son might like it too. All her ideas for fun resonated. I listened to her every word, and when she paused, I looked deep into her eyes, then back at the sticky note, and back into her eyes once more. She was still poised on the floor on bended knee, looking up at me, holding up the sticky note, She had beautiful blue-green eyes, like the ocean waters of Hawaii. She had a warmth to her, too, more magnificent than the sun, because while the sun could light up the sky, this spa attendant's outpouring of kindness had accomplished something even greater. She ignited my heart. It was love at first sight. If this was a proposal, the answer was yes. Thank you so much. Can I have your phone number? I blurted out. Then I blushed, embarrassed, backtracking. I was well into my 30s now. I hadn't made a new friend in what felt like a really long time. What if she said no? What if she didn't want to give me her number? I really wanted to be her friend. So much so that I didn't think I could bear the heartache of her refusal. So I immediately backtracked before she could answer. My name's Tej, I interjected. My husband's name is Sidi Chand. Maybe it would be easier if I give you my husband and I's phone numbers, I offered. I figured if I gave her my phone number first, then she could decide if she wanted to call me or not. It would be a gentler form of rejection than to put myself out there asking for her phone number only to have her decline. She nodded in agreement, withdrawing the sticky note. She told me she'd go get a pen and write down both her and her husband's phone numbers. She promised to return with an additional sticky note for me to write down my husband and I's numbers for her. I went home that night waving the yellow sticky note, filling my husband in on the fortuitous meeting. Her name is Michelle. She has a husband, Michael, and they have a two-year-old the same age as our son, I told him. Michelle and I texted and made plans for a playdate for our children the following weekend. The plan was for our husbands to come too, so we could all meet each other's families. At an elaborate wooden castle playground called Soldiers' Fields, Michelle introduced us to her husband Mike, a brown-haired fellow with a wide, radiant grin, a little like William T. Riker from Star Trek, but tempered with a kind of humility in the lines of his brow. And a grace in the angle of his jaw that seemed to be a nod to his Irish ancestors. Our children got on like a house on fire. The pair of them ran around the Wooden Castle playground without stopping for the entirety of the playdate. When Michelle said it was time to go home for dinner, her daughter was reluctant to leave. Michelle gently but firmly redirected her daughter towards the car. It's time for dinner. Let's go home and have our tofu, rice, and broccoli. As their family waved goodbye and walked away, my husband and I turned to face each other, wide-eyed. Tofu, rice, and broccoli? He whispered to me, eyebrows raised. My husband and I were vegetarians. Tofu, rice, and broccoli was something we ate at least once a week with our son. We looked at each other, smiling and relieved in the middle of the rural Midwest, where hunting is a major recreational sport. Befriending this family felt like a Minnesota miracle. Honey, we found our people, I said, sealing the deal. We started seeing each other's families every weekend, becoming fast friends and adopted family. Michelle and Mike became Auntie Michelle and Uncle Mike, our son's emergency contacts and alternative pickup people at school, in the rare case something might happen to my husband and I. We were raising our son in a town where the public school system was found to be in violation of the Civil Rights Act for over-disciplining black children compared to white children. The threat of the school-to-prison pipeline was a very real trap we were trying to outmaneuver by sending our son to a private school. We counted our blessings that we had the money to do it, We also counted our blessings that we had found our son, his Auntie Michelle and Uncle Mike, people of love, who loved him and treated him the same way they loved and cared for their own daughter. Michelle loved me too. Soon after we got to know each other, she started giving me these big, tight hugs before leaving our apartment with her daughter, telling me she loved me. I told her I loved her back. Besides being moms, we had so much in common just as people, Coincidentally, we found out we shared the same favorite coffee shops, Monmouth Coffee near London, England's Borough Market, and Pete's Coffee and Tea, specifically the Pete's Coffee and Tea in Cambridge, just outside Harvard Yard, with its oasis of emerald green lawn. Michelle and I also shouldered a similar lineage. We were both children born to physician fathers that shared a quiet fire, her father, a Samoan-American plastic surgeon, painter, and chef, and my father, a British-Indian general internist with a love of flowers and physics. A year after meeting Michelle, I started working as faculty at the same academic medical center where we had met. My husband and I told Michelle and Mike that we had jumped at the job opportunity because we now had family living close by. Without Michelle, Mike, and their daughter, we would have gotten up and left town. Rent was escalating at our little apartment complex and we had to act quickly to buy a house. Mike hooked us up with a great real estate agent named Carl, who had helped them find their home. The same day Mike connected us with Carl, my husband found a brand new listing on Zillow that he really liked. Carl got us in to see the place the next day. Michelle offered to watch our son, so we dropped him off with Michelle and her daughter, And then my husband and I quickly headed north to meet Carl at the new house. Walking up to the bright yellow front door, I used the large bronze dragonfly door knocker to announce our presence. Carl, a tall, broad-shouldered fellow with brown hair, kind eyes, and glasses, opened the door, smiling and welcoming us inside. I took off my shoes and stepped onto the terracotta tile floors of the open concept split-level home. A few feet ahead of the front door was a short carpeted staircase of seven steps leading up into the living room. To my immediate left was the kitchen, and sandwiched between the front kitchen and the upper level living room was the dining room, and past that into the living room. Walking into the kitchen, there was a large opening above the countertop, allowing us to see into the dining room and pass that up into the living room. You know how on TV, prospective homebuyers will often walk into a place and say things to the camera like, Wow, I could really see myself living here. Well, I didn't have that experience in this house. Standing in the kitchen, feet planted on the terracotta tile floor, hands on the beige countertop, looking through the kitchen opening into the dining room and beyond. It was not myself that I saw in the house. I saw Michelle. It was impossible, of course, because Michelle was presently on the south side of town babysitting our son at her house with her daughter. But nonetheless, here she was. Michelle was standing in the dining room facing me same smiling blue-green ocean eyes, arms outstretched towards me, palms open, entreating. How can I help? Can I bring anything in? And while Michelle stood there smiling, offering to help me, offering to bring something in, I saw her husband far off in the most distant corner of the dining room, looking out the glass patio doors, out towards the horizon, He was wearing his heavy green plaid winter jacket. His brow furrowed. He looked wary. Philosophical. Everything that was being revealed to me happened within seconds, while my husband and Carl were carrying on in a much more ordinary fashion, discussing the details of the house, the date of the kitchen renovation, the age of the furnace, the age of the roof, the square footage of the house. I could hear their conversation, but it was muted, faded into the background. To the forefront instead came a rush of giggles, chuckles, voices in a squeaky soprano, along with the bass of little feet, first cascading down the carpeted stairs, building to a crescendo as the footsteps landed with a thud on the tile floor near the front door. Three little ones ran into the kitchen in a blur, one after the other. I recognized the one in front as my son, a little bit older, a little bit taller. But who were the other two children? I couldn't decipher who they were. Their faces and their laughter disappeared as quickly as they had appeared. I said nothing of what I saw to my husband. It was impossible with Carl present. He seemed like a very nice, friendly fellow. But he didn't know me, and I didn't know him. I was well aware of how I might look, and how I might be judged. So at the end of Carl's tour, standing in the backyard, on an abundant green lawn, underneath the generous shade of large maples and oaks, I turned to both my husband and Carl, saying just four words. Let's make an offer. The next day, the offer was accepted. Within just 48 hours on the market, The house was now promised to us. My husband called me on Monday, stressed, worried we had acted on a whim and would live to regret it. I told him we would not, and in a hushed voice from my office cubicle, I quickly explained to him why. Detailing what had been revealed to me when I first walked into the kitchen, he listened. Okay, honey, I trust you and your vision but it doesn't change the fact that it was still rash of us to not include any contingencies and waive the inspection. That was crazy. He was right, of course. The vision I had seen left us in the dark on a lot of details about the house, and then some. Though it was clear to me that Michelle's appearance in the house was a sign that the home was destined to be ours, what was less clear was the rest of the vision. Why was her husband Michael looking so wary? so philosophical, so distant while gazing out the window. Mike's resting demeanor was one of laughter. Even when he was annoyed, he was laughing. Why had he looked so solemn? And who were the other two children running through the house? The meaning behind the vision would eventually reveal itself, and it would almost break all our hearts. It started after work on a Tuesday. A Tuesday. Years later, in September, I was standing outside the same building where I had met Michelle. I was waiting for my husband and our two kids to pick me up. As I waited, I checked my text messages. I saw one from Michelle sent to our group text on Signal, a group text we shared with our husbands. I have a spot on my liver and I'm getting a biopsy this Friday. I wanted you to know because you are my Rochester family. I read and reread Michelle's text. The two sentences of her text ripped through my world immediately. The sky turned from a sunny day in September into a stormy one. It felt like all of a sudden there was a storm front on the horizon heading towards us. Distant thunder and lightning, dark gray churning clouds with the power to destroy everything in its path. And at the same time as I felt the relentless advance of the storm front, I personally felt like I was being squeezed, like an invisible vice had placed my psyche between its steel surfaces and was slowly tightening and squeezing me between its plates. Michelle's two-sentence text message made two things very clear to me. The first was that my friend was going to die within three months, And the second was that I had to resign from my job immediately. How did I know Michelle only had three months to live? As a doctor, I can't possibly justify it or explain it. I just had a feeling. You see, there's lots of reasons why someone can have a lump on their liver. Having a lump on your liver doesn't necessarily have to end up being a bad thing. A biopsy could put you in the clear and reassure you that everything's going to be fine but this was different. I knew what I was feeling. The feeling of dread in the pit of my stomach was all too familiar. My husband and I had felt this way before when his mother had been suddenly diagnosed with stage four gallbladder cancer and then died within eight weeks. 10 weeks after Michelle's initial text message to us, on a Tuesday in November, Michelle was at home on hospice. She had been diagnosed with cholangiocarcinoma, a cancer of the bile ducts. Stents, little tubes, were placed inside her bile ducts to stop her skin from turning yellow, but the stents caused other complications, creating pockets of pus in her abdomen. As her liver was failing from the cancer and her body started to disappear from the cancer and the infection, she spent most of her time in hospital and some of that time in the ICU. Many of us could feel her fading away, and it made us sick with grief. Mike lost a lot of weight. Michelle's sisters couldn't sleep at night. I ended up with a pneumonia. Yet while we all struggled in all that time, not once, not once did my friend show any signs of anger. Not once, Did Michelle betray any trace of bitterness? Not even for one moment was her heart corrupted by resentment. The message she repeated over and over again on visits or in late night text messages was, I cannot thank you enough. I cannot thank you enough. The eye of the storm had finally arrived. On a Tuesday in November, my husband and I dressed up and took our children over to visit Michelle. Michelle, Mike, and their daughter lived in what looked like on the outside to be a cozy Colorado log cabin in the forest. But to my husband and I, stepping inside their home always felt like stepping inside a temple. And this time, we were bringing our musical instruments so we could sing to her. In their bedroom, I sat for a long time holding Michelle's right hand. Her hand felt tiny, like a child's. Nearly all the muscle in it had disappeared. Still, I felt love cascading from her tiny hand into my hand, up my arm, into my heart. She was pouring the whole of her being into me, It was so powerful, the strength of this love, so obvious to me what she was doing that I broke the peacefulness of the room with my protests. Michelle, I blurted out, I'm the one who's supposed to be comforting you, and here you are even now taking care of me. Her older sister, Teresa, was sitting on Michelle's left side and laughed at my protests. Though Michelle was lying almost motionless in her bed, silently staring at me, the way her little hand was holding me, holding all of me, gathering up all the pieces of me and putting them back together, made it clear now, more than ever before, that I was not in the presence of a mere mortal. So I released Michelle's hand to let her rest. My husband and I sat down on her bedroom floor with our musical instruments. Our last meeting as humans was destined to be much like our first. Only this time I was the one kneeling at her feet. I looked into her eyes and made her a promise. Michelle, I said, this is a time of great transition." We walk through this transition together. And with that, I pressed my right hand down on the black and white wooden keys of the harmonium as my left hand pulled in the instrument's air pump. As the room filled with the deep drone of the B major chord, my husband's fingers gently struck the tabla, lifting the music with the dancing rhythm of the drums. After chanting to Michelle, we got up and left, rejoining all of the visiting family in the living room. My sons, aged two and six, were both sitting on the couch. I sat down on the floor across from them. As I got myself comfortable sitting cross-legged, I heard the sound of steel clanging behind me against a door and the muted but growing reverberation of little rubber wheels rolling towards us. I turned around and saw Michelle. She was standing up, holding her IV pole, walking into the living room to sit with us. She floated down onto the couch, softly tucking herself in between my two sons. I whispered urgently to my eldest son to move. I secretly wanted to give this dying woman all the space she needed. But Michelle made a subtle lift of a few fingers, gently waving away my protests indicating I should just let the children be. Mike brought out long, woolly socks and put them on Michelle's feet, pulling them up over her thin shins to just underneath her knees to keep her warm. She sat there quietly, a queen holding court in the long, woolly socks in her fuzzy robe and nightie, tethered to the ivy pole. She had lost most of her ability to speak. I sensed she wanted us to laugh the way we always had done when we gathered together. So I spoke up for her. Hey, Michelle, I said, do you remember how President Obama used to call the house? She looked up. Though she was mostly skin and bone, she still managed the muscle to smile. She grinned at me. Her eyes met mine and held me steady. There was a flash of joy that made it certain she indeed remembered those historic phone calls from her fellow Hawaiian. She nodded her head again and again, lifting her eyebrows, encouraging me to retell the story. So I did. I retold for all the family in the room the story of Michelle, the president, and the rotary phone I took everyone back to those early days in 2017 when our children were two. They both had the same Fisher-Price toy, a bizarre combination of a rotary phone that doubled as a car with wheels. If you yanked on the receiver, the rotary phone could roll on its wheels like a car, following you wherever you might go. It was perfect. And so began the story of Michelle, the president and the rotary phone. In that first year we got to know you guys, we would have dinner every weekend. And after dinner, when we were enjoying tea and dessert, you would hear the rotary phone ring. You would turn from the stove to pick up the phone's receiver and say hello. Then your face would light up and still keeping your ear to the receiver, you'd quickly cover up the mouthpiece, whispering with excitement that President Barack Obama was on the phone. Back then, it was 2017 in our very red and rural county. We missed him. Yet here he was, calling the house. It was a relief to know that he was still out there, no matter what. And even more than that, it was exciting to know that we mattered to him, that he cared about us, that he cared about us enough to call us. The president would always ask us if we had enjoyed our dinner, and we would always respond in chorus. Yes, thank you, Mr. President. We enjoyed our meal very much. The children would also pipe up, itemizing for the president what they had eaten for dinner, and he would often ask them if they had finished all their vegetables so that they could earn their dessert. Michelle laughed silently, her whole body quivering from the laughter and the memory. But then... I continued. When the children got older, we put their phones away. The president stopped calling. But the week my second child was born, Cityjund, my husband pulled out the old baby toys. You and your daughter were over to meet the baby for the first time, and sitting in the middle of the playmat was the rotary phone. You saw it, and it started ringing again. You picked up the receiver. You said hello, got excited, and you put your hand over the mouthpiece, whispering and asking us again if we could guess who was calling. Your daughter, who's so smart, so sharp, she piped up immediately, of course. Yes, I know, I know who's calling, she said. It's President Barack Obama. She guessed correctly. We all got excited, gathering around you and the rotary phone. I was especially excited because the president had never called my house before. In the past, he had only called your house, Michelle. And that made sense, given you were both Hawaiian. You knew each other. But now, here he was, calling my house. And during an especially auspicious week, because my son had just been born a few days ago. It turns out that the 44th president knew all about it and was calling specifically to send his congratulations and bid the baby a warm welcome into the world. I told Michelle, it was so kind of him to call. It made me feel like we were special, like we mattered. Michelle smiled again, her eyes brimming with joy. Michelle The president and the rotary phone is my final memory of my friend. Two days later, Michelle took her last breath. Her husband, Michael, came over to our house and read her last will and testament from the top of the living room stairs to an audience of family and friends gathered in the dining room. In her will, Michelle bequeathed instruction that all who knew her must devote at least 10 minutes a day to meditation, be it sitting walking, cooking even. I loved hearing her final official message to us. I loved knowing that her last will and testament was the same as this podcast, to encourage you to devote a little time every day to your own meditation practice. I call it the last breath practice because every night before I sleep, I do an inventory of my day, of my life, of who I am. I ask myself when I take my last breath, how do I want to feel? The answer always helps me come more fully alive when I wake up in the morning and the answer changes. The call to come more fully alive evolves every day. I feel Michelle with me every day. Her love is a constant companion. I feel her love when I pause to witness the golden light of the rising sun, and in the brilliant bright eyes of her daughter. I feel her love in the Friday night dance parties to Disney songs that we do with her family. I feel her love in the jokes her sisters text me, and in the boundless laughter of her husband. I even feel like Michelle's love and curiosity has something to do with the way I talk to the wild turkeys that sometimes strut through my backyard. Occasionally her love returns to me so strongly that it overwhelms me. I break down weeping from the joy of it. The joy of knowing my friend is very much still alive. Our love, our story. Our relationship continues. I want to thank you for listening to this tribute to Michelle. She has been one of the greatest teachers of love I have ever experienced. And as you walk your own way towards a promised land, that sovereign territory of your own joy, your own fulfillment, our collective fulfillment as one human family. I hope every day you will walk the path with love as your guide. I hope each day when you meditate, you will bathe yourself in the cleansing waters of your own love. Let love wash away whatever risks making your heart heavy. Let love wash away any bitterness, any resentment. And if it's too hard to give yourself love, if it feels awkward, inauthentic perhaps, then do this. Imagine the arms of the person who has loved you most, surrounding you, holding you, protecting you, pouring love into you. Do this every day. Call on the one who has loved you. Let them guide you as you go forward to claim your joy and fulfillment. In closing out this episode, I invoke again the words of a great luminary, the poet Dr. Maya Angelou, in her reflections on love and loss. I am grateful to have been loved, and to be loved now, and to be able to love, because that liberates. Love liberates. It doesn't just hold, that's ego. Love liberates. It doesn't bind. Love says, I love you. I love you if you're in China. I love you if you're across town. I love you if you're in Harlem. I love you. I would like to be near you. I'd like to have your arms around me. I'd like to hear your voice in my ear. But that's not possible now. So I love you. Go. Go, Michelle. Go. Go light the way to a promised land. I love you. The Last Breath Podcast is written and hosted by me, Dr. Tej Khalsa, MD. The podcast theme song is written and performed by me. I'm a physician and educational consultant to the World Health Organization. The views expressed on this podcast represent my views only, specifically my own mission of connecting stress management, resilience, and well-being to our collective secret longing for rehumanization and liberation. The Last Breath Podcast is a free public service offered up to our one human family. Special thanks to Diana Williams and David Stenhouse of DDG. Special thanks to Makia Moody of Kairos and Heart Consulting. Special thanks to Avtar Singh Khalsa, whose song Freedom is featured on our season finale episode. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical evaluation or treatment. Our summer retreat is available now. Tickets are limited, so get yours today. Visit our show notes for details.